All right. Well, we are continuing uh, this week in our sermon series called Created to Need. And uh, if you've been with us these past four or five weeks, uh, you know where we're going. If you're new, uh, we're glad that you're here. And we've been looking at uh, the core human needs that mark the human condition, not merely desires, but needs, things that we need in order to be human. And we've looked at our need for dignity, looked at our need for love, our need for purpose. And this morning, we're looking at our need for peace. And uh, one of the uh, things that we've been doing unique uh, to this particular sermon series is beginning every sermon looking in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the early chapters of the Bible, to get a sense of the very beginnings where God talks about the creation of humanity, the creation of the world, and the way that we were, that these needs were built into the system, as it were, right from the very beginning. I had uh, an entire, uh, no doubt, brilliant uh, introduction about peace, but I also am recognizing that we're running a little later uh, than we normally are at this point in the service. So I'm going to shorten up my introduction uh, a little bit here. And just, I want to say this one uh, thing. As we think about peace, we can often have a in mind the idea of like inner peace, like peace of mind, freedom from anxiety. That's a concept in the Bible. We see that uh, lots of places in the Bible. That's not the kind of peace that we're talking about today. We're talking about relational peace or harmony, uh, peace that requires two people, you know, peace uh, in relationships. Unity could be a synonym uh, for peace. And we're going to be looking uh, at Genesis 2, as we've read, then we'll go to Genesis 3, and then we're going to end our sermon today uh, at the table uh, and thinking about what the table means for us in terms of peace. So with that as our introduction, we're going to jump right in to Genesis chapter 2, which has already been read for us, looking at what Genesis has to say about peace as it relates to interpersonal relationships and beyond. So Genesis chapter 1, as you may have observed in our previous sermons, gives us a bird's eye view of the weeks or the days of creation, the creation from the planets to the sun, all the way culminating in the capstone of creation with Adam and Eve made in the image of God. And so Genesis 1 gives us the bird's eye view, but Genesis 2, which a portion of which we've already had read for us this morning, focuses in on specifically the creation of humanity, how Adam and Eve were made. And one thing I want to draw from in Genesis 2 earlier uh, here in the chapter, which wasn't read for us, but has been read previous weeks, is this idea that Adam is made for the dust. Adam is made from the dust, just like the animals are made from the dust. And so that's a setup, I think, to help us understand the creation of Eve in 2.18 then through 25. We have Adam made from the dust. We have the animals made from the dust. And a search is now going to be made for a suitable helper for Adam. As we've noticed, noted in previous weeks, particularly in Pastor Johnny's me uh, message on love, the world is made good. Uh, at the end of all that God has made, he makes a statement that it was very good. But Genesis 2.18 is the first text that we read where things are not good, and it's not good that the man should be alone. So God makes the man first, and it's not good that the man should be alone, and he needs help. We might ask ourselves, what does Adam need help doing? 
Well, when we think about the broader context of, a, of Genesis chapter 1 with humanity made in the image of God, Adam's role is to be an image or an idol or a, a, uh, an image of God, right? So that as the world and creation looks at the living human being, the creation sees a picture of the unseen God. This is Adam's role, his purpose, his function in being created. This, I would believe, I would suggest, is what he needs help with. He can't image forth God properly by himself. He needs someone to help him. Now, that might cause the thoughtful reader to ask why it is that Adam, by himself, is insufficient for imaging forth God. The animals are brought before Adam. God creates the animals out of the dust, brings them before Adam. None of them, though, are capable of helping Adam fulfill his calling as an image bearer. And this leads us then to the creation of the woman. God creates Eve. And I want to note specifically how she's made in comparison and contrast to the way that Adam and the animals are made. She alone, of all that we read in Genesis 1 and 2, she alone is not made from the dust of the ground. She's made from Adam's side. She's made from the very stuff of Adam. And the ordering in creation here, incidentally, if you, like my 10-year-old daughter, are keeping score about whether boys are better than girls or girls are better than boys, the ordering of creation here speaks in favor of girls. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the way that the creation account runs, it runs from kind of the, the more mundane to the glorious, right? The capstone of creation is humanity, and the capstone of humanity is the woman. And I believe that the way that Genesis 1 and 2 is put together, we have Eve created last as the, as the consummating creation of God that helps humanity fulfill its image. John Milton refers to Eve as the last and best of all that God has made. So, uh, young ladies, if you're in an argument with a boy and he is saying that boys are better, you can just say, last and best, baby, last and best. <laughs> and uh, in any case, in any case, uh, when Adam wakes up, he sees Eve and he proclaims, as we've read here in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So let's look at what we have here up to this point in the creation. God makes the man, and then he draws forth the woman from his side. She is, we might say, begotten, not made, certainly not made like the other animals or the man. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She is one essence with the man. She's clearly of the same as him because she was made from him. There is deep unity between them, yet they are distinct and diverse from each other. They're two separate persons. And what's more, catch this, if we go all the way down into verses 24 and 25, what's more, they were created in such a way with unity and diversity that they might come together as one flesh and produce a third person, a child, who is likewise one essence with both and yet distinct 
in person. So what does that sound like? It sounds a lot like what we just read in the creed earlier here in the service, which is why I had it read for us today. Do you note the language that as the church began to grapple, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? and How do we put all these things together? The church came up with this formula we read in the Nicene Creed to articulate the relationship between the Father and the Son. And of the Son, it is said that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And the church's historic teaching on the Trinity is that God exists not just as a single entity, a single monad, a single person, but that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Three distinct, we might say diverse persons in one united divine essence. We have diversity and unity in the Godhead. And so as God makes his image upon the earth... It doesn't work to just create the man by himself. The man by himself is not sufficient for imaging forth the diversity and the unity within the Godhead. And so God makes a woman, and together they make a third. And here we have the full picture of the image of God, both unity and diversity. And when we consider that, was hum- that humanity was created to image forth God, it makes sense that since God is unity and diversity, that humanity had to be unity and diversity. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with the idea of peace? Here's how this works together, I think. The peaceful accord, the harmony, the relational harmony that marks the eternal Trinitarian relationships was, at the time of creation, reflected in the peaceful accord that marked the first human relationships. So in Genesis 2, humanity is made at peace with itself, unity and diversity, at peace with itself, and necessarily so, for peace is a reflection of God's inter-Trinitarian peace. So that's the Bible's picture of human peace at creation. Unity and diversity, or better we could say, a unified diversity. So when the world is made, human beings are at peace with each other. Adam and Eve see themselves in the other, so that when Adam looks at Eve, it's clear that she belongs to him and he belongs to her. They are bone of bone. They are flesh of flesh. And they are distinct from each other, though, yet they belong to each other. Diversity and harmony. This is how humanity was supposed to be, not only between husband and wife, this was the the kind of primordial relationship that was then to be fruitful and multiply out into the whole world, but that humanity writ large, not just between husband and wife, but between all human beings was to be marked by a harmony and a peace that was bringing together diversity under the banner of the image of of God. Like dignity and love and purpose, God granted humanity peace as a gift to be lived out in rich, satisfying human relations. And then, with every one of our sermons here in Genesis 1 and 2, we have to move to Genesis 3, where this peace breaks apart. The peace that God had bestowed upon humanity that was meant to govern human relations is broken when humans rebel 
against God. We've already looked at Genesis 3 a number of times throughout our sermon series, but we reference it again here. Adam and Eve were told that they could eat from any tree of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, this is the one thing that they do. And eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they know that the pain of disobedience is death. Adam had messed up. He knew it. And when God comes walking in the garden, Adam knows that he's in for it. He feels the threat of that encounter. He had been warned, after all, what would happen to him. And so to defend himself from this threat that is coming, this threat from God, he turns upon Eve and he throws her under the bus. Or we might say he takes Eve and throws her like a sacrificial lamb between himself and God. He's trying to deflect the threat that is coming from God. Peace between God and humans had fallen apart, and immediately what follows is a fracturing of peace between human beings. This peaceful accord that God had meant to build into human relations from the very beginning, before it's even had a chance to really get off the ground, is already fractured, and Adam and Eve are at odds with God, and they're at odds with each other. And what follows then in the rest of the biblical story is a sad account of human beings living in a state of near perpetual warfare and conflict. Adam turns on Eve, Genesis 4, Cain turns on Abel, Genesis 5 on into Genesis 6. We see that humanity has fallen into such violence that God regrets that he has even made human beings, brings a flood, and the flood It's not a nice story about how God saves animals. It's a rather dark story about how God judges the world because it has descended into such violence and chaos where everyone only thinks wicked thoughts all the time, it says in Genesis chapter 6. But even coming out of the flood, having preserved Noah and his family, God knows that human violence will continue, and he says as much in Genesis chapter 9. As surely as the sun rises and sets, there will be bloodshed that will mark human existence. And that's where we find ourselves today. We live in a world that is pockmarked by violence and war. This isn't to say that there are no moments of peace. Thank God that there are moments of peace or that all of us experience human strife at its absolute worst. Thank God that most of us don't. But the world is marked by violence and war. Not just our present world as we look across the international stage at all of the conflict and strife that exists in the world today, but looking back through the sweep of human history, so much of history is, of human history is simply the history of humanity killing each other and vying for supremacy and being at odds with each other. We are like anxious Children, as human beings, we are like anxious children who live in a home where mom and dad scream at and hit each other. We live in a world where nations war against nation, race against race, gender against gender, spouse against spouse, sibling against sibling. Our world is awash in greater or lesser degrees of violence. Sometimes it spills over into our lives in its most ghastly forms like sexual abuse or a assault, or racism. At other times, we experience lesser 
perhaps more subtle expressions of this breakdown of peace, this strife and violence. I think if all of us are really honest with ourselves, we would have to acknowledge that we are both the recipients of violence and we are also the dispensers of violence. That we are not fundamentally and intuitively and reflexively agents of peace into the world, but rather we are those who look out for ourselves, who reflexively self-protect. We are like Adam who will grab anyone and anything close to hand and throw it in front of us to protect ourselves. We don't have peace in mind with our world, but we have our own safety and well-being. We are emotionally psychologically, and at our most extreme human beings who are quite literally killing ourselves. So where do we go from here? Where do we go living in a world that is marked by such violence? Well, I want to, before we're going we're gonna to end in Ephesians 2, you can make your way there, but before we get there, I want to take a moment, as I have in past sermons, to note some of the futile ways that I think we try to cope with uh, this fact that we live in a world devoid of the peace that God intended. I think the first, there's two errors I think we can make, and I think they're kind of equal opposite errors. The first error I would say is this, is that we try to achieve peace by eliminating diversity. So God created unified diversity when he made Adam and Eve as a reflection of the unified diversity of the Trinity. So the diversity within humanity is, is meant to be occasion to reflect peace, occasions for peace, but we find that our diversity very frequently gets in the way of peace. And so we try to achieve peace, I think, or prioritize peace by eliminating diversity. America first, or closing the borders, the refugee crisis that's in the news so much. Whatever one might think about the politics of all of these sentiments, it's a sad testimony to the human condition that the only way we seem to be able to get along with each other as human beings is by trying to minimize our interactions with people who are not like us. What does that say about us as a race? What does that say about where we have come as human beings? That the way that we find peace is by minimizing our interactions with people who are not like us. But that's the world we live in. We divide up by race, by socioeconomic status, by language, by religion, by gender, by sports teams. Right? We find our tribe and we coalesce around people that are like us. We seek peace by trying to surround ourselves with the people who are most like us. We want peace without the complication of diversity. That may be be a descriptor of you this morning. Do you find difference, the difference in the other, do you find that threatening? Do you hide yourself in your own tribe and view the rest of God's image, the, the creative complexity that he has built into the human condition? Do you find that creative complexity, that diversity, do you find it to be a threat? Or perhaps, for some of us, we don't even find it worthy of our attention. We're just going to put our heads down and think about and think of those who are like us. Peace without diversity is not the Bible's vision of peace. That's a truncated, monochromatic peace that doesn't reflect the full diversity of God. 
But then we might say, okay, then let's move to the other direction, right? Let's focus on diversity. Let's celebrate diversity. And I think there's a portion of our world that moves in this direction, right? If, if the political right moves to a, a, unified, uh, a unified peace that doesn't have diversity, perhaps the political left moves in the opposite direction with the celebration of diversity. But, but I want to caution here a little bit because sometimes what happens is we try to achieve peace and diversity but we make diversity an end in and of itself. I think one of the things that, as a Christian community, we would have in common with our Oak Park neighbors here and the Oak Park Village and surrounding areas is that scriptures clearly call us to diversity, and that's a shared value. But it hasn't always worked in the world, this idea of celebrating diversity. If you've been watching the America to Me miniseries, which is a documentary uh, ref, uh, reflecting on uh, the students at Oak Park, this is one of the critiques that is being raised. We've, we've kind of put diversity together in the same building, but it hasn't quite worked its way out in all the ways that we would have hoped. I think there's a lot of reasons for this, and I don't pretend to be an expert on any of them or all of them, but, but one major reason, I would say, is because you can't you can't unify diversity around the mere idea of diversity. One's zeal for diversity has to be driven by more than zeal for diversity. You can't say, what binds us together is our diversity. No, that's what sets us apart. The question still stands, what does bind us together? Something needs to be the center around which diverse parties come together. If you want to build a peaceful unity in the midst of diversity, then you have to build a unity around something greater than the diverse parties that need to be unified. If you want to build a unified diversity, then there has to be built around something greater than the diverse parties that need to be unified. There needs to be a higher reality that transcends and humbles both parties a higher reality that both parties must equally integrate into. Because when you don't build unity around a higher reality, a reality that transcends both parties, what inevitably emerges is a false unity that favors the group that has the most power. And unity becomes little more than diverse people in the same room with the majority feeling good about how diverse they are and the minority still feeling on the outside. And God help us and forgive us, because I think this is in fact, I know this is in fact, how many of our minorities feel here at Calvary. And that's not the Bible's conception of peace with diversity. We need to do better. We want to do better. We can do better. And the scriptures give us the beginnings of how to do this better. And that takes us to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which has already been read for us, I want to just give a brief moment of context, which might not be self-evident uh, here in reading this passage. When uh, Christianity breaks upon the scene, all of the early Jesus followers are Jewish. They are of the Jewish nation, they are of the Jewish religion, they are of the Jewish culture. 
And Jesus is sent as the Jewish Messiah for the Jews. And so it makes so much sense to the early followers of Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment and the culmination of all of their Jewish history. And there had always been an uneasy relationship between the Jews and the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. There had been occasions when Gentiles would want to get in on, as it were, the blessings that God had provided to the Jewish people. And so there would be proselytes, that Gentiles who would convert into Judaism. They would become circumcised. They would begin to keep the kosher food laws. They would observe uh, the Sabbath days. They would convert into Judaism so as to receive the blessings of the Jewish nation. And so when Jesus shows up and the gospel begins to go forth first through the Jewish people, it then begins to spill out into the Gentile world. And lo and behold, the blessings of God are coming upon the Gentile world without them converting to Judaism. And so this creates some consternation and some questions in the early church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. A council is called in which the question that's put forward is this question. Do the Gentiles have to continue to proselytize into Judaism in order to access the grace that God extends through Jesus? And of course, you can understand why the Jewish people would assume, of course, the answer is yes. We are the keepers of the covenant. We are those who have the promises. And if Gentiles want to get in, they're going to have to come in and become like us before they can experience the grace and the provision of God. But that's not, in the end, what was decided by the early Christians. They recognized that what God was doing was something unique and unexpected, that God was creating a place of equality between the Jew and the Gentile who both had equal and free access to God through Jesus Christ. So that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to access the provisions of the gospel. The Gentiles could go straight to God through Jesus Christ. And we have there then, we look here in Ephesians 2, uh, 14, or go back up to verse 13 here in Ephesians 2, 13. Look what Paul is saying now. He's saying, but now in Christ, you who were once far off. He's a Jew, and he's talking to Gentiles. And he's saying, you Gentiles, you were once far off, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The hostility that had marked Jew-Gentile relations, Christ has taken that away and he has allowed Jew and Gentile to become one. Not by making Gentiles become Jews, but by creating one new thing. Look what he goes on to say. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. Paul will say elsewhere, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but there's Christ. That the two who were separate from each other have become one again. The diversity has come back together and been unified under the banner of Christ. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. Not the hostility between God and humanity. That's certainly true. But Paul's talking right here, the hostility between Jew and Gentile, between our fellow man. 
And he came, Jesus, and he preached peace to you who are far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, us Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we are no longer strangers or aliens, but we all have access to God through Christ. And Jesus is the greater reality that stands above all human diversity, that provides hope for peace. The Christian vision of peace, though not always achieved in the ideal, humbles all equally under the banner of Christ. There can be no power party in true Christian peace. Christ is the power before whom all of us must bow. He is the center and the source of peace. He is the cornerstone upon which the entire structure is to be built. He is the banner that is lifted high, that draws all men to himself. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted high, and when he is lifted high, he will draw all men to himself. And in drawing us to himself, as Christ is lifted high, he draws us to each other in unity, unifying in peace the diversity that has hitherto been such that we have been plagued in warfare. And there's good news in the hope of the gospel that Jesus is building and one day will bring a kingdom of peace where the nations will no longer view each other as a threat. We will no longer view each other as threats, individuals, but we will come together in peace under the banner of Christ, in harmony and accord. This is the world that Christ is making, and it's what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer and pray, your kingdom come. It's what we're asking for. We're asking for the peace that was proclaimed at Christ's birth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We want that peace to come in its fullness and will come in its fullness in Jesus' return. We can't solve all the problems of the world. But as Christians and as a congregation, we can foreshadow the peace of the world that is to come. We can be, as Jesus calls us to be, peacemakers. Those who live into the peace that is coming when Christ returns. I think Calvary uniquely has an opportunity to show forth the beauty and the glory of God, God's, God's unity and diversity. I haven't done a study on this, but I suspect it's possible that we are the most diverse congregation in Oak Park. Politically diverse, we are probably split down the middle. Economically, wide socioeconomic uh, discrepancies among us here. Ethnically, linguistically, and what could possibly explain the fact that all of us gather together every week other than Jesus Christ? Because why would we be here if it wasn't for Jesus Christ? Because we would find our tribe, we would find our people, and we would all, each of us, do our own thing with our own people. But there is something that stands above each of us here and the things that are near to us. And what is more near to us is Jesus Christ. And he's the banner that we unify under. I don't think we've got this all figured out. 
I think there's a lot of work for us to do here on this. But I think there's great potential for us to come together increasingly as a congregation, unified under the banner of Christ, so that the diversity that is represented in this congregation today would grow and would be a testimony to the image of God. We would image forth the reality of God so that when people come into this congregation from the outside, they would see our diversity and not think about how great diversity is, but that they would see our diversity and think about how great our Lord is who brings this diversity together in unity. Amen? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But peacemaking isn't always peaceful. Jesus is an example of this himself. He came to bring peace to the world, and it cost him a lot of turmoil. And he stood in the garden, he kneeled in the garden, and he was in anguish. To be at peace isn't just to be at peace with ourselves, but it's to be at peace with our fellow human being. Most to begin our fellow Christian and then extended on out. Sometimes being a peacemaker means we have to forgo inner peace and tranquility and enter into the suffering and the pain of others. And that will mean letting go of some of our comfort, letting go of some of our own tranquility, moving into spaces that are awkward and nervous for us. But Jesus says, blessed are those who make peace. We want the blessing of God. We, we need peace. We need peace. God offers us peace with each other through Jesus Christ. And as we lay hold of him and the peace that he gives, it gives us the opportunity uniquely as Christians to unify around him, showing forth in our diversity that there is something greater that binds us all together. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ. Thank you that in the midst of all of our uh, diversity, which is beautiful in so many ways, but then in so many ways threatens to uh, put barriers between us. You have given us Jesus, and he is, the, he is the one that we love, that we adore, that we come together around, and we pray, Lord, that you would increasingly help us as a congregation and as individuals to find our identity not in our own little tribes that we uh, would retreat to in safety, but that we would find peace in you and then in you extend it to each other and then through each other beyond these walls into the world that so badly needs peace. Lord, we need peace. We thank you that you've given to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.